to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 1. And the message is entitled, Off to a Good Start. Off to a Good Start. When 2 Chronicles was first written, it brought hope to a people who desperately needed some encouragement and some hope. The Israelite population had been reduced to a tiny minority in exile among the Babylonians. And they were struggling to understand where they fit in. Did God take back His promises that He made to Abraham and David because of Israel's sins? Was there any hope of reviving David's family dynasty? Could Judaism survive without the temple? Second Chronicles deals with questions like these. And its answers came from looking back at history and seeing how faithful God was to the Israelites in the past. And even though the nation had steadily declined over the centuries, God had always been faithful to those who stayed faithful to Him. The good that God had done for them in the past would be the same for the things that He would do for them in the future. God would keep His wonderful promises to the Israelites. Second Chronicles responds, or I should say corresponds with First and Second Kings. But it just about ignores the, second, the northern kingdom of Israel because of its false worship and wouldn't acknowledge the temple in Jerusalem. Chronicles focuses on those kings who pattern their life and reign after the godly King David. And it gives more coverage <clears throat> to such zealous reformers like Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Joash, and Hezekiah and Josiah. The temple and temple worship are the most important thing throughout the whole book, which is becoming for a nation whose worship of God is the most important thing to its survival. Now, the book starts out with Solomon's glorious temple, and it ends with Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple more than 400 years later. Israel was chosen by God to represent him on the earth. We have been chosen by God to be a light as well, to represent him on this earth, to a dark and lost world. But too often, the Israelites forgot or neglected the truth and their calling. And without thinking, they followed after idols just like their heathen neighbors did. And then when the prophets and the priests and the judgments of God would come, those things would drive them back to the one true living God and in a hurry. Second Chronicles tells about the sorry history of Judah's corrupt and idol-worshiping kings. Every once in a while, a good king would come along in Judah. And for a while, a revival would break out. But then their downward spiral would continue, ending in chaos, destruction, and captivity. The writer's purpose for writing this book is to bring the people of Israel back to the true worship of God after being in captivity. And he would do that, that is, bring them back to the true worship of God by reminding them of their past. Think about those things that God has done for us in the past. And that's the pattern for what he'll do for us in the future. And that only they would prosper, you know, if only they would prosper, you know, because uh, if they followed God, that's when the way, that's how it would take place. Prospering by following God. Like uh, it was said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Notice, for then, once he kept the word of God in his mouth day and night, it says, for then will you make your way prosperous and then, notice, you will have good success. So as we read 2 Chronicles, you're going to get a a quick peek into uh, Judah's history But again, the history of Israel, that is the northern kingdom, is pretty much ignored. And you're going to see the terrible consequences of idolatry. Learn the lessons from the past. You know, it said that if we don't learn from the past, we're we're, we're bound to be doomed by it in the future. Make up your mind to get rid of any idols in your life and to worship only God. Second Chronicles continues the history of First Chronicles. David's son Solomon is now, on, is now king and on the throne. Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, fulfilling his father's dream and last request. Solomon enjoyed a peaceful and prosperous reign for 40 years. That made him famous all over the world. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king and his immaturity divided the kingdom. In Judah... There were a few good kings, but there were more than enough evil ones to go around. And the writer of Chronicles faithfully recorded for us their achievements as well as their failures, telling us how each king measured up to God's standard for for success. Now, obviously, a good king obeyed God's laws. He would do away with the places of idol worship, and he wouldn't make any partnerships with other nations. Some of Judah's good kings, like I said, were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Ahaz and Manasseh, on the other hand, were probably the worst of the worst. And in the end, the nation was conquered and taken captive, and the temple was destroyed. And the author here clearly makes his message known through probably one of the best verses in the Bible. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their land, and forgive their sin and heal their land. So as we read 2 Chronicles, listen for God's voice. Obey Him and receive His restoring and healing touch. Now while 1 Chronicles focused mainly on David's life, 2 Chronicles focuses on the lives of the rest of the kings of Judah in the southern kingdom. Very little is said about Israel, the northern kingdom, because number one, Chronicles was written for Judeans who had returned from captivity in Babylon. And second, Judah represented David's family from which the Messiah would come. Israel was in a state of constant turmoil and rebellion against God. But at least Judah made some effort here and there to follow God. So let's begin now in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 with verse 1. And it says, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. Even though Solomon was young and inexperienced, notice, God chose him. And God is going to bless him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chooses the weak things of this world. And God is going to use Solomon. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said that God's strength is revealed in weakness. 
So again, we, we, you know, God isn't looking for strength so much or, or, or you know, eloquence or brilliance. He's looking for availability. When we make ourselves available to God, God can use us. God will do the work in us and through us. Now, David was a great man, but he's no longer around. David is dead. Solomon was a great man or is a great man, but he's young and he's experienced. He's a rookie king. But God was going to use Solomon and God was going to allow him to do the actual building of the temple. Verse 1 says, Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom. And the kingdom is going to rise to its highest peak under Solomon's rule. David laid the foundation for the kingdom. And verse 1 says, And the Lord his God was with him and exalted him, speaking of Solomon, exceedingly. So we see the graciousness of God in the life of Solomon. But unfortunately, Solomon will disobey God and he's going to come to a place where God's going to reject him and, and, and tell him that he's going to divide the kingdom and Solomon was responsible for that split. The reason that God didn't divide the kingdom when Solomon was the king was for David's sake, not for Solomon's. Look at verses 2 through 5 now. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it. For he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him, that is God, there. The tabernacle was at Gibeon. Remember that the ark was brought by David to Jerusalem. And it's there in Jerusalem in a tent. But you see, the people couldn't come directly and immediately to God because of that. And this is important to understand. You see, the way to God was through that tabernacle. But the brazen altar was in Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. And you see, that brazen altar speaks of the cross of Jesus Christ. They had to go there to approach God. When a worshiper would go into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing that they would come in, they would see was the brazen altar. And you see, the first thing they saw was the brazen altar because that's where they would sacrifice for their sins. That's where they would make atonement for their sins because if without the atonement of sins, they couldn't advance any further to approach God. We cannot approach God in our sins. The brazen altar where the burnt offerings was made is commonly thought to be a type of the cross upon which Christ, our offering, was made. You see, you and I have to come before God in the same way. You know, there's the idea today that, you know, under any condition, you know, and, and, and anybody can just rush into the presence of God and that God's ears are wide open to hear what you have to say. But the Bible doesn't teach that. You see, the Bible teaches that the Lord does not always hear prayer. Listen to what the psalmist said. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. David said this in Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. 
the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, God never said that he'd listen to the prayers of those who do evil. And I believe that the only prayer that the sinner can pray that God wants to hear is to go to God in repentance. And to accept his saving mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to approach God, you have to approach him through the cross. And this is what Solomon does. Notice that he took his leaders and they went to Gibeon where the tabernacle and the brazen altar were. He's showing wisdom here, at least in the beginning of his reign. The way to God is through the brazen altar, a type of the cross. They couldn't go to him through just the ark. In other words, you and I don't come immediately and directly to God. We must first go by way of the cross, which leads us to God. There's no other way to God but through the cross. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And he said, no one. And that's pretty easy to understand. No one comes to the Father except through me. But why was the ark in Jerusalem and the tabernacle and the brazen altar of sacrifice had he given? Why were they in two different places? They should have been together. That was God's original design. That was God's original plan. That's the way it was designed at the beginning and the end. This is something unusual that's described here and not according to God's commandment. It's hard to understand how such a a deviation from, from God's plan could happen in a time where such great care and even the smallest detail was followed. So the discrepancy described here may suggest to us some things. It may suggest our twofold responsibility that's symbolized by the ark and the altar. One of these is worship or sacrifice, whichever you want to call it, both the same, worship or sacrifice. We have a responsibility to worship or sacrifice. Men came to the altar of Jehovah with their gifts or sacrifices. Then they came consciously into his presence. That is the ark. They brought their offerings to him and then they asked him for his mercy and his blessing. You see, apart from the ark, Apart from the cross, we can't ask for his mercy or his blessing. So worship or sacrifice, this is just one part of our responsibility. But it's a big part of the responsibility that we have in our rest in God. We we have been set apart by God to draw near to God in reverent worship. We're to bring to him our pure and costly offerings. We're to ask him for his divine favor to pay him Our vows. Secondly, the other part of our responsibility here is obedience. The ark, remember, had the Ten Commandments inside. This was the great treasure of the ark, and it was always associated with the symbol of obedience. And both Jew and Gentile alike are under the very strongest obligation to obey the voice of the Lord, to keep his commandments, to do what's right in his sight, and to avoid all of those things that God has condemned. Thirdly, or secondly, our our temptation. This may suggest, again, the deviation between the the obedience and the sacrifice or the worship is our temptation. We are often tempted in life to do what's happened here, to separate worship from obedience. To separate the altar and the ark. Again, representing worship and obedience. And too often there's a huge gap between our worship and our obedience. But please understand, you can't have one without the other. 
You see, one person, uh, one person can make everything a form of devotion. You know, just a ritual. It's just a ritual. It's just going through the motions. It's not pure. It's not a holy act. And then another person can make everything an act, but without worship, from true, from true worship from the heart. You see, we're either led by the world or by the flesh, our flesh. We're led by our, the world or our flesh to go off in one direction and leave the path of God's wisdom. Or to exaggerate one part of truth but less than the other. Or to separate what God has joined together and meant to go together and to stay together. And this separation of worship and obedience, it causes big problems. It ends in error. It leads to mistakes and deviation from the mind and the will of God. Another area of responsibility that, that you know, we might shirk you know, and again, and resulting in the separation between obedience and worship is our, is our wisdom or the lack of. As later on, the ark and the altar were, were reunited as they both stood within the area of the temple and spoke of the indispensable connection between worship and obedience. So we should see to it that if there's any separation of these two essentials of faithfulness in our spiritual life, we need to bring them back together. Obedience and worship go together. I remember Pastor Dale telling me one time, the highest form of worship is obedience. How can we not obey God and come to him with pure and holy worship? The habit of, of obedience should, in, should in, include the act of worship. Because worship is one of those things that God has commanded. And every act of obedience should rise up from in us in, by instinct because of our relationship with God. You see, worship encourages us, stirs up a desire in us to please and honor the all-seeing Lord. Worship should, worship should lead up to and end in obedience. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 22, God said to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Notice what God considers a true sacrifice. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a heart that's, that's, that's honest before God, that's broken before God. He doesn't, he doesn't care about our sacrifices you know, or burnt offerings if it's not coming from a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah said in Isaiah 1, 11 through 17, notice what God says here. God says to the people, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. He says, notice, I have, had, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of cattle. He says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. He said, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Notice what God says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fathers. Plead for the widow. 
God says, I, I, I don't want you to, to, to worship me in, as a formality, but worship me through your life. Through the acts of kindness, through the acts of love that Jesus Christ showed us when he was here. You see, a person's devotion, that results in service. A person's devotion also results in the purity of life, in truthfulness, in loyalty, and in a selfless love after the mind of Christ. So let the ark, which is a symbol of obedience, never be far from the altar, which is a symbol of worship, because worship and obedience, as I said, should always be together. Now verse 6. And Solomon went up there, notice, to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Verse 6 here shows us that they were definitely not stingy in their sacrifices. Notice the offerings that were given to God, a thousand offerings. You'll see all the way through this period that there was a lot of sacrifices that were offered during the time that Solomon was king. Verses 7 through 12. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father, and you have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and, may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked rich for riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor, nor shall any after you have the like. Now notice how after the sacrifices, God appeared to Solomon. This is important to recognize the order here. There were sacrifices made before God appeared to Solomon. And he said, ask, what should I give you? What do you want, Solomon? God is a generous God. He's a, the generous giver. David said of God earlier, all things come from you, God. He said in Psalm 33, 5, the earth is full of the Lord's goodness. And James describes him as the father of lights. And this invitation given to Solomon by God was and is exactly like that of the king of kings when he said, ask and it will be given to you. And Jesus offers the same to his followers. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. When did God appear to, to, to Solomon? On that night, it says in verse 7. After the day, Solomon had given the offerings, the sacrifice. And again, like I said, this is important to see. Because you see, God is not likely to appear to us at night if we haven't thought of him and been with him during the day. In other words, it's like, you know, I'm doing my thing all day long. I'm busy. I got things to do, people to see, places to go. And, you know, God is kind of the, the last person on my mind or, or, or in my heart at the moment. 
And then I come home at night and I've kind of settled down. And I'm kicking back and, and now I start, you know, calling upon God. But he hasn't been in my thoughts all day long. He hasn't been a part of my life all day long. Well, God isn't likely to appear at night to those who haven't thought of him and been with him during the day because we get so busy in our lives every day and God is you know, kind of just waiting around to be with you. Then at the end of the day, it's, oh, by the way, Lord, I need this and I need that. Now, we don't know how the Lord appeared to Solomon. It doesn't tell us here. Maybe it was in a dream. But it shows the thoughts and the feelings of Solomon that he had during the day before. You know, men can often have, you know, wonderful, pleasant dreams about God when they've been thinking about him during the day. But notice, in Solomon's case, this wasn't a dream. This was a real manifestation of God to his heart. There was a, a true exchange of asking and answering here, of giving and receiving. And it's proved by the fact that Solomon got what he asked for. Now, why did Solomon get what he asked for? It was to prove what was in Solomon's heart. And it was to test whether the sacrifices on the day before were the result and the expression of a truly devoted heart. You see, what, what Solomon asked for the day before and all those sacrifices, were they truly in his heart? And see, by God answering Solomon's prayer, it proved that what was in Solomon's heart was truly deep in his heart. Were all the sacrifices he offered to the Lord from the heart? You see, it was to determine whether Solomon had taken the throne with a clear understanding of what he was doing. Was he taking the throne because he wanted to be king? He wanted to be famous? He wanted to be prominent and wealthy or whatever else might come along with, with the throne? Or did he take the throne because he knew of the responsibility and, and the great thing to serve God and to serve the people? To be a servant of God. To see if, if he knew what he needed most to successfully carry out his kingly duty. And you know what? God still tests his people today, usually by giving the same invitation that he gave to Solomon. You know, he says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. And occasionally he will put us in some situation where we have to choose. Like Solomon was asked to do. You know, what would be best for me? Well, Lord, you know, I could sure use a uh, million dollars right now, you know. Or, Lord, teach me what you want me to learn from this trial. God wants to see my heart in the midst of difficulties. He wants to see my heart in my service to him. So, again, he will occasionally put us in those situations where we have to choose. What am I going to ask for from God? What would be the best thing for me? What did Solomon want? Because God gave him kind of a, a blank check. Solomon, what can I give you? Man, can you, I think all kinds of things I might ask for. <laughs> wow. And think, well, you know what? God gave me the invitation, so why not? Must be okay. But it's to test my heart. Do I want things that are going to help me better serve him and his people? To be a better man, a better father, a better, you know, pastor? Or I'm going to ask for things that, you know, hey, well, you know, I want to be well known. I want to make money and I want to. Do. 
God's going to test my heart. He asked for wisdom and knowledge because he understood what he was do- the, the task that he was undertaking to be king of, of God's people. The importance of this request, wisdom and knowledge. What is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Wisdom is the principle of knowledge and knowledge is the application of wisdom. In other words, knowing the alphabet is knowledge. I may be able to spout off the ABCs. But now do I, how do I, wisdom is how now to, to turn them into words. Making words out of the ABCs. You see, wisdom is the soul's ability for seeing truth and discerning how to use truth for the part, particular need of my life. That's why we need to pray for wisdom for our life, especially when we're going through trials. Because we can get really confused and, and, and misguided when we're going through difficult times. Solomon wanted the spirit of wisdom. Why? So that he could see clearly what God's will was in every situation in his future career. Solomon wanted the ability to understand so that he could always know what he needed to do. This was the best thing that Solomon could have ever prayed for at this important place and time in his life. No prayer could be any better uh, at any point in a person's life. Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge. James says, if if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. He won't rebuke me for coming. And Lord, I need wisdom. He won't, you big dummy. He He won't rebuke me. He'll give it to me liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. The most important thing our souls need is an eye to see and an ear to hear and light to see with. The ability to find out and understand God's will concerning the heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 143, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Paul said this in Ephesians 4.18. He said, The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because, notice, of the ignorance that's in them. You see, God's people go astray mostly because they have no knowledge. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.34, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. We need the word of God. We need the knowledge of God. And it only comes through the word of God. Again, the reason for, for, for Solomon's request, he says, I, I'm, I'm new at this, God. I've never been a king before. I'm inexperienced. I lacked the ability to carry out the duties of being a king. He felt that he couldn't rule God's people properly. Now, this was an encouraging sign for Solomon to admit and willingly confess, Lord, I don't have the slightest idea what I'm doing. I don't have the wisdom and the knowledge. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it, you know, it is not that we think that we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. This is the first step towards holiness. To admit, Lord, I, I, I have so many shortcomings. I, I lack this and I lack that, lack that. 
So the first sincere effort in improving yourself is to admit, Lord, I'm not perfect. I am not perfect. I have I so have so many faults, Lord. But this confession comes from a truly spiritual person. And when a heart starts asking for light, that means they're not in the, they're not totally in darkness anymore. They're not totally blind anymore and they become aware. They come they become aware that that they're in the dark and that they're bothered by the darkness. And then the, the, the basis for Solomon's request, his basis for the request wasn't that he was a great man's son. Well, Lord, you know, I am the son of David. And it wasn't because he thought, well, I'm a great man too. At least in my position. And he didn't come under the, the guise of, well, I'm very spiritual. But he came uh, on the basis of that God had, had graciously promised his father David to be a father to Solomon and to establish David's throne forever. He's saying, Lord, my father prayed for you to be a father to me and to establish my father's throne forever. So not asking, so because Solomon didn't ask for anything else but grace and for no other reason that God's covenant with men on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, we need to pray for any work that we do for God. And God granted his prayer. God said, Solomon, wisdom and and knowledge are granted to you. Solomon got what he prayed for. And God still gives to those that ask him for the higher blessings of his grace. And he gives it unconditionally, freely, and exactly as we ask. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The promise that comes with this verse, Psalm 37, verse 4, is that if we delight in God, and that's the key, If we delight in God, God will give us the desires of our heart. Now, what does that mean? Because this verse has been terribly misunderstood and misused. I heard people say, well, you know, oh, man, I'd really like to have that house. Well, hey, God says he'll give you the desires of your heart. Oh, man, I'd really like to have that, whatever it might. Oh, well, God said he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, yeah, but we got to understand what that means. What it doesn't mean is that God is not going to give us every foolish desire or whim or something that's not good for me. What it means is that if I am delighting in God, if I am longing for God, and I'm longing for His righteousness, and I want the same things that God wants, hey, I shouldn't be surprised if God answers my prayers. You see, the key to this effective prayer life is a, person heart, a person's heart that's beating in sync with God's heart. In other words, your heart and God's heart are beating as one. You hate the things that God hates and you love the things that God loves. I'm on the same page with God in His work and in His will. Then God's going to answer those prayers. Jesus said to the disciples, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And even when they ask for temporal or material blessings that are not inconsistent with, with their good, even those things are not withheld. In other words, if it's something that will help me out in my walk or, or in my life and it's good for me, God won't hold those back. The psalmist said in Psalm eighty four eleven, for the Lord will give grace and glory, notice, and no good thing, that's the key, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But it's got to be a good thing. 
Good for you. Good for your life. Good for those around you. God even gave Solomon a whole lot of stuff he didn't even ask for. Solomon didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for fame and power or a long life because he didn't. God said, you know what? I'm going to throw that in too. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, food, clothing, necessities, they will be added. And Paul adds in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, God is able to do for us exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Learn from this, from, from Solomon's prayer, the freedom, of God's, the freedom that God's people have in prayer. Secondly, the superiority of heavenly wisdom over all earthly things. Third, the reality of answers to prayer. Fourth, the benefit of sometimes limiting our prayers to God. Solomon's prayer, I mean, it was super short. Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge. That was it. And yet God answered him and gave him so much more than he prayed for. Maybe we need to limit sometimes our laundry list of, Lord, give me this, give me this, I need this, I need that, I need this. Lord, just, you know, bless me however you will. Just help me to walk uprightly with you, God. That's what I want most. And then just watch how God blesses you. In closing, let's look at verses 13 through 17. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon, from before the tabernacle of meeting, and reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva. The king's merchants bought them in Keva at the current price. They also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 100, uh, 150. Thus, through their agents, they ex exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. You read here that Solomon made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamore trees that grew in the foothills of Judah. And silver and gold, he made them as common as stones. And if you've ever been to Israel... Or if you've seen pictures, you know there are just, there are rocks and stones everywhere you look in Israel. You'll notice here now that he's already getting into an area that was forbidden for kings. God had told them, that is kings, in Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 17, God told the kings, the day you have a king, this is what he said, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Notice, notice where he's already headed. Solomon is now gathering horses and he's becoming personally wealthy. And we'll see later on, he's also going to multiply wives to himself. 1 Chronicles 28, 7 through 8 says this. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if, notice the condition, if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and judgments. And in these in verses, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 17, he's already breaking those commands. 
He said, be careful to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, we see Solomon getting off to a good start at the beginning of the chapter, Lord. He goes to Gibeon and to the brazen altar, Father, and he offers all the sacrifices, Father. He, he does it right. And then as we get towards the end of the chapter, Lord, we see him getting into an area, Father, that's going to cause him big trouble, Lord. Father, that shows us how easily and how quickly we can go astray, God. Father, how we can separate worship and obedience, God. Father, we, we can only worship you truly and faithfully, God, in obedience. God, help us to strive for obedience, God. Because in our obedience, our worship will be pure. It will be holy. And in our obedience, we will be able to approach a holy God. And I pray this evening, Lord, that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that God, this word, your word, God would touch their hearts. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm-hmm.